0: um uh on today's sermon uh today's message uh i want to start off in something that's actually not on there it's something that uh, as I was going through the book um, going through the book of john it's kind of my own personal time of worship and this morning I was reading in john fourteen and and jesus said something that 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 um uh just kind of spoke to my heart, and I'm wondering if it'll speak to yours as well, particularly knowing where this message is going. Um, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's telling them that he's going to go away, and where he's going, they can't come. Uh, which is a pretty tough scenario for them because they've given everything to follow him. And now he's saying he's going someplace where they can't go. And so, so chapter 14 in John opens up with these words. Jesus tells them as they're experiencing this anxiety about what this means and what does this mean for me, what does it mean for you, Jesus. Jesus looks at them and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. And, and what jumped out at me this morning was, The power that I have over my heart, that I can choose what it focuses on, right? And and, and Jesus is telling his disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. In other words, don't focus on the fact that I'm leaving. Instead, focus on the fact that you can trust in God. Because then what Jesus goes on to tell them is that even though they won't see him for a little while, he is preparing a place for them in heaven. And so even though it looks like he's going to be gone and he's forgotten them, he's actually working for their good. And so he says, trust me. And so for us, as we go into today, um, uh, let Jesus' words rest with you too. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Instead, let's focus on trusting the God who brought us together today. Let's trust in him. Let's trust in his son, Jesus. Um, Even if he feels distant today, know that he is working for your good. And as we go into this message, uh, know that he is working for you. Let's pray. Jesus, um, uh, you said, do not let our hearts be troubled. And this morning, that helped me. Um, I pray that it helps us. Father, as we, as we focus on you, as we choose to, to, to shift the, the attention of our hearts from all the things that are going wrong and all the things that are going on in our life uh, to your word and to the preaching and teaching and singing of your word. And God, I pray that, that that would give us rest in our souls, that that would give us this deep trust in you. And Father, that's what I pray. I pray today that we trust you more when we leave this place than we did when we walked in. Father, that you do that for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, as we dive in this message, too, I want to tell you that for some of you, today is a very special day, and here's why. Uh, How many of you love the game of football? Okay. How many of you watch SportsCenter more than your spouse likes? See, less hands, but truthful, I appreciate that. Yeah, right? you, are, you are people who love sports. You love football. I am not one of those people. Right? I am not a big fan of football. In high school, I was a swimmer and a diver, uh, which is kind of the opposite of football. Right. Um, the Super Bowl was last Sunday. I honestly did not watch a single minute of the game. Not a single minute. Here's what we did do at our house. We watched Masterpiece on PBS, <laughs> right? It is a wonder that I never got beat up in high school, right? But, 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 but that's, I'm, just, I'm just not into it. So, so, so why is today a special day for some of you? Well, today, if you are a football person, if you love sports, um, I'm actually going to start off with a football story. Right, it happens about once a year, and today is the day. So that's why it's a special day for you. So even though I didn't watch the Super Bowl, um, uh, I did catch the news on Monday morning where they talked about the Super Bowl, and it was then that I saw what an incredible game that it was. Right, for those of you who watched it, it was a great game, wasn't it? It was. It was pretty incredible. Uh, halftime, uh, it was tied. Right. All right. So far, third quarter. 49ers shot ahead um, the score was 20 to 10 the chiefs were down but in the fourth quarter something crazy happened actually it's like the last 7 minutes if i'm if i'm right that the chiefs made this comeback in the last 7 minutes where they not only won the super bowl they 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 scored more points in those last 7 minutes than the 49ers scored the entire game which is incredible and then i found out not only Did they do that for the Super Bowl, that in the last three games of the playoffs, they did the same thing, where they came back from behind? That is crazy, and that is amazing. And the reason I was watching it is because I was watching this interview with the the quarterback of the Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes, and and the interviewer asked him, he said, what did you tell your team when the clock was running out? It's the fourth quarter. They were far behind. What in the world is the quarterback and the leader of the team? Did you tell them to rally the team? And, and he said he kept shouting one simple phrase, and it was this. He said, finish the game, is what he told his team. Now, can you imagine this guy running up and down the sidelines in the huddle, telling his teammates to finish the game? And that's what they did, right? In those last seven minutes, uh, they went from 10 to 31, and they won the Super Bowl 31 to 20. Finish the game is what their quarterback told them. Well, this phrase fits perfectly into our message today. Finish the game, because here's where we're going to be. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. If you need a Bible, there's one in front of you. It's on page 870, and that Bible is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, please take that one with you. If you do have a Bible, bring your Bible with you. We would love for you to have your Bible with you. Uh, You can also uh, log on to the Bible app. And we're there under events, uh, under Fellowship Asheville, and the scripture for today is there, along with questions to consider. And and in this series uh, called Breakthrough, we're looking at the first three chapters of Revelation. Because the first three chapters of Revelation are different than the rest of the the letter of Revelation. Because this first three chapters is comprised of seven letters to seven churches, seven ancient churches. And in each of these letters, Jesus follows the same flow of ideas with these churches. He, he, he gives a description of who he is. And this description that he uses for himself often applies specifically and directly to the church that this letter is going to. And then, after he gives a description, he talks about what this church is doing that is good, and he gives them some, some, some encouragement in that. He tells them what they're doing wrong and what needs to change. He tells them what change looks like. What does it look like to repent? And then he tells them what happens if they don't. What are the consequences that are laid out if if they don't repent? And then he tells them what are the rewards if you do repent? What is life going to look like if, if what you're doing that's wrong isn't part of the church culture, isn't part of your life anymore? And we saw this last week in the very first letter that we looked at, which was the letter to the church in Ephesus. But here's the deal. Today's a little bit different. Out of those seven churches... There are two where this flow of ideas isn't followed because two out of the seven churches aren't doing anything wrong. Jesus describes himself. He talks about what they're doing right, and they're not doing anything wrong. Last week in in Ephesians, he said, he said, not Ephesians, but in the letter to Ephesus that, that John wrote, he said, this I have against you is what Jesus said next week. If that wasn't bad enough, when Jesus says, this I have against you, next week, when you look at the church next week, Jesus says, I've got a few things against you. Like, it's not just one, it's a few. Well, this week, we don't see that in this letter. They're not doing anything wrong. But in the midst of this letter, though, there is still this warning for all of us. Now, we're calling this series Breakthrough because what Jesus has here for you today might be the moment of your breakthrough. Remember, these mirror pieces that are up here, we did this just to kind of capture the idea of breaking through, right? Of of glass being broke through, of mirrors being broken through. But what's unique about these pieces of glass, these mirror pieces, is that if you call Fellowship Asheville your home, if you're a member here, a tender here, or, or a visitor here, your name is written on the back of one of those pieces of mirror, which means you were prayed specifically to break through a wall of your faith that you keep hitting because we believe we all hit certain walls in our faith, right? It could be a wall of doubt. It could be a wall of discouragement. We saw last week uh, in in that letter is a wall of distraction that they were hitting. And we all hit these walls, and what we see is that Jesus tells you what this wall is because he wants to break it down for you and take you through this wall. That's why uh, these letters are written. Jesus wants to break down the walls for these churches, and he wants to break down these walls for you. See, this week's wall needs to hear what that quarterback told his team. This week's wall needs to hear, finish the game. You, today, might need to hear, finish the game. Well, let's, let's dive in and see, and let's start off with how Jesus describes himself. Uh, So this is uh, chapter 2, verse 8, says this. And to the angel and the church in Smyrna. I'm going to stop there because I'm going to describe this city a little bit, Smyrna, uh, before we go on. And, and, And what we will see is that the church in this city. Remember, this is a different time. There weren't churches everywhere. In these ancient cities, there was one church of Jesus' followers. Which is why Jesus can be so specific to this is what this church and this city is dealing with. And so this church in Smyrna, this city that it's located in, the Jesus followers in this city are having a really rough go of it. Poverty is rampant in this city. Even though it is a thriving city, it is a a commerce city, uh, there's still a lot of poverty there. And a lot of people in the church fall under this, which I'll describe why in just a minute. But the church that's there, those who have said yes to Jesus, those, the church is facing all kinds of accusation and slander from those outside of the church. Now, it's not lost on me, too, that this, church, this city, Smyrna, its name means bitter, is what the name means. And so bitter describes what the church in this city is experiencing. This, the church in this city, it is a rough place to be a follower of Jesus. And in that context, Jesus describes himself. Look at what he says. He says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and last. So this is one of the ways Jesus describes himself. He he says, I am the first and I am the last. I was there at the beginning. I will be there at the end. If you look at the book of John that he wrote, the gospel of John, he describes Jesus this way that he was there in the very beginning, and, and he came and dwelt with us. And Jesus is saying that, that he is a God who is ever-present. He is there at the beginning, and he's there at the end, or there at the beginning, there at the end for y'all. And so, so what this means, too, whenever you see this in Scripture, when somebody says, I'm there in the beginning, I'm there at the end, is also this term of authority and control. And so Jesus is saying, is saying that, that, that as part of his description, He is this ever-present God. He is there from the beginning to the end. And not only is he ever-present, he is in complete control of what's happening. Now, here's why this is important. This church is suffering. And when you're suffering, it's easy to think God's not in control. And so he starts off in the very beginning that he is present with them from the beginning to the end, and he is in control. And then he says this about himself. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, this is a picture of the gospel, right? That Jesus died and he was resurrected. This church, those who have said yes to Jesus, they know this gospel. They know that Jesus' death on the cross, his crucifixion, paid the penalty for their sin. So that they could have this good and right relationship with God, which gives them life. They know that, that he rose from the dead. They, they know and have believed this gospel and, and that they have this abiding internal relationship with this ever-present God who's in control. But there's also something else here about dead to alive, about death to life, because it goes against the natural flow of things. The natural flow of things is that death, is that life leads to death, Right? But Jesus is saying, I was dead and brought to life. And it's this great picture of what this church is suffering, right? Because, because what Jesus is showing them is that there is a pattern here, and we're going to see it played out. And that the pattern is this, that victory is on the other side of suffering. And this pattern is in your life too. Jesus is saying, I was dead, that's suffering, but I became alive, and that is victory. Now, here's why why this is important. Why does the church in Smyrna need to see this pattern? Because they are suffering already. They are already experiencing suffering. You see, here's here's what was happening to them. To give you a little church history context of this, uh, when the church started, it was started under the umbrella of the Jewish faith because Jesus is Jewish. And so they would meet in the synagogues, and they were very connected to the Jewish faith. Okay, so, so it was under that umbrella. If you step out a little bit and look at the nation of Israel, an important thing to know about the nation of Israel at this time is that it wasn't an independent country by itself. Rome ruled over the nation of Israel. They were the, they were the, they were the law over the land of Israel. Right? And when I say Rome, I don't mean like the city Rome the, you know, like where the, the, all the things are, the Colosseum and all that. I mean like the nation that stretched over the known world, that Rome ruled over the nation of Israel. And as part of Roman law, because Romans had all these different gods for all these different things, as part of Roman law, you were mandated to worship one or more of those gods, which is why in all of these cities that these seven letters go to, and in every city of this ancient culture, there were temples to these gods. Because the reason they, they did this is they wanted peace in the land. And this, 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 the, 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 the governing rule of Rome was the peace of Rome, and they wanted people to have and experience peace, and they saw worship as a way to do that. What's interesting, though, is when they took over the nation of Israel, they learned that these people called Jews worshipped only one God, not many gods. And because they wanted to keep the peace in the land, they allowed the nation of Israel, if you were Jewish, you could worship just one God, your God, by law, because they wanted to keep the peace. And so they had this freedom, by law, that they could worship their God. Now, into that context, Jesus came, and he started sharing the gospel, and people said yes to him, and he was crucified, and he was resurrected, and people believed in his name. And for for years, that was under the umbrella of the Jewish faith. Well, then, the Jewish faith started separating itself, and the church started separating itself from The Jewish faith. And so so you see this in the book of Acts. You see the gospel going out, and you see this this separation between the Jewish faith and the church. And and Rome took notice of that. Because there were all these people that were running around and they weren't talking about, they weren't talking about the peace of Rome, they were talking about the peace of Christ. And Rome started realizing these people aren't connected with those people anymore. They're doing things differently. They're not meeting in the synagogue. They're meeting in their homes. They're taking care of each other different. They're talking about love and the love of Jesus and the peace found in Jesus. And Rome started taking notice of that. And so they started putting their laws, the Roman laws, on the church that that they didn't do to those who worshipped in the temple, to those who were Jewish. And so because of that, If you were a follower of Jesus, you didn't have the freedoms that you had when you were Jewish, right? And Rome started taking notice, and so there was persecution. When you said, I'm not going to worship these Roman gods, I'm going to worship Jesus, you couldn't work anymore. Because everything was divided into trade guilds, and those trade guilds would meet in temples of gods and goddesses. And when you said, I'm not going in there because that is worship, and I'm not going to partake of that food because it is food that is offered to those idols, all of a sudden you weren't part of the trade guild anymore and you couldn't work. And so that's the kind of persecution they were facing. That's the kind of poverty that was there. And we're going to see it's even worse than that too. But but that's the context that they were working under. And here's why this is important. It's about to get worse for them, is what Jesus is going to tell them. Now, here's why this is a big deal for you. If you're suffering for your faith, and it can look very different than it does for them. If you're suffering for your faith and you're suffering in your faith, that's why this is important that we see that Jesus was dead and came to life, that victory is on the other side of suffering. Because when you're in the midst of suffering, oftentimes it feels like suffering is on the other side of suffering. It feels like victory is too far away. It's real easy to lose sight of that victory because life doesn't feel like victories on the other side when you're suffering. It just feels like more suffering. And just like the chiefs had someone telling them to finish the game, maybe that's what you need. And you need someone to tell you to finish the game. That's what's going to happen as we go through this passage. Well, let's see the kind of suffering uh, that they were under because here's what they were doing right. In verse 9, it says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I'll describe that in just a minute, work through that in just a minute. But there is the is stuff that they were dealing with. It was tribulation, it was poverty, it was slander, and in their poverty, Jesus wants them to know that they are actually rich, because even though their bank accounts might be absent, might be empty, they do have this ever present, abiding relationship with a God who is in complete control. And that makes them rich. And maybe you need to hear that too. Maybe your bank account is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and you didn't know you've got this ever present God who is in control. And you are rich. But this church here in Smyrna is being slandered by those who say they're Jews, and they're not. And to them, Jesus gives this incredibly stunning commentary that they belong to the synagogue of Satan. That's bold, isn't it? Well, here's what what I think is going on, and here's what I think Jesus is getting to. At the end of the day and at the end of time, all souls will be divided into two camps. Those who follow Jesus and those who don't right? And at the end of the day, those are the two camps, and those two camps have a leader. Those who follow Jesus, he is our leader, and those who don't, their leader, simply put, is Satan. Now, they are not beyond redemption, right? But Jesus is giving clarity on who their leader is, on whose orders they're following. And so these people who say they're Jews, but they're not, but they're attacking the church, they're accusing the church. Jesus is being very clear that they are following the marching orders of someone. And that someone is ultimately Satan. Now, this is where they are in Smyrna. And Jesus tells them what's coming, too. And he tells them that they've done a good job and they have stayed faithful. And they will need to know all the more that victory is on the other side of suffering because more suffering is coming. And it's going to feel like suffering is on the other side of suffering. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, if what they're dealing with isn't enough, Currently, Jesus is telling them there's more coming, and it's going to get even worse. They're going to be thrown into prison for their faith, for saying yes to Jesus and being faithful in that. They will be in prison, and they will be in prison for 10 days. Now, some commentators say that this is 10 literal days that they will be in prison. Some commentators say that this is a temporary picture of their their tribulation and pain, and in light of eternity in heaven, uh, it is is short-lived. I don't know. I don't know if they're in in, in, going to be in prison for 10 days. I don't know if those commentators are right that it is temporary. But I do know that that is true, that in light of eternity with God, any suffering and any tribulation and any accusation we face here is temporary. Because there will be a day where that is gone. And if it's something that you need to know and something we need to know when we are suffering is that victory really is on the other side of it. And then he says something's going to happen to them when they're in prison, which I want to make sure we're all on the same page with biblically. It says that they will be tested when they're in prison. Now, to fully understand what this means, I want to step back and kind of remind us of what Revelation is all about, right? Because I think this is important. If you are here for the first week, um, you picked up on this. If, you, if you're just joining us right now, I think it's, you'll, you'll be able to get this uh, pretty well, too. Because if you remember that very first week that we were in Revelation, I said Revelation is all about one person. Remember, I said Revelation is all about who? Jesus. That's right. Good job. Right? Um, Revelation is all about Jesus. Now, we need to know Revelation is all about Jesus because here's why Revelation is all about Jesus. Revelation is all about Jesus so we can trust him fully. Because here's what we're going to see in Revelation. Revelation is designed to increase our trust in Jesus. Because when we see how powerful he is and how holy he is and how caring he is and how how intimately personal he is, when we see all of that, we realize we can actually trust this Jesus with more than we are right now. And this Jesus told the church in Smyrna that they're going to suffer and that this suffering is going to be a test. Now, here's what a test is and what a test isn't. I'm going to start with what a test isn't. Because when we hear the word test, most of us probably think of like an exam, right, from school, where you've studied, you take the test, you get it back, and you see what you did right, but more importantly, you see what you did wrong, right? I was a school teacher, and and I gave a test to my students, this one particular test, and uh, everybody failed it. With the exception of like one student, there's always that one student that can read the mind of the teacher. You know, that one student did great, but everybody else failed it. Here's what that test showed me. That test did what a test is supposed to do, because a test is designed to show you where you fail. And it showed me that I failed as a teacher. On that concept. I did not do a good job teaching my students that concept, and as a matter of fact, I did such a bad job, it was very clear and very evident by everybody's grades that I failed in teaching that. That's what a test is designed to do. If you're a student and you fail a test, it shows that you didn't listen or you didn't study well. It's designed to show failure. That's what an exam does. An exam shows error. An exam highlights failure. That's what it does. This is not what a biblical concept of a test is. A biblical concept of a test is less like an exam, and it's more like an experiment. And here's what I mean by that. In school, we learned about this thing called the experimental process, right? You start off with a hypothesis, which is an educated guess. You take your best stab at something, and then you gather evidence to see if your hypothesis is correct or not. And we use this process all the time. For example, parents with kids, you ask your child, did you clean your room, right? You already have a hypothesis in your head, (laughs) right, as to whether or not they clean the room. The first piece of evidence you gather is their answer, and they'll let you know, yes, I cleaned the room. But you need more evidence, don't you? And so you go to the room to see if they've cleaned it. That's your next piece of evidence. Then, if the room looks clean, you want to make sure that they really cleaned it and didn't just shove stuff everywhere. So you look under the bed and in the closet because that's where it goes, right? You're gathering evidence. You're, you're, You're using the experimental process. You're trying to determine if your hypothesis is correct or not. Because here's what an experiment does right? An exam is designed to show failure. What an experiment does, an experiment reveals truth. That's the whole process of the experiment. You want to see what is true. I think a biblical test is more in line with an experiment than it is an exam. An exam shows failure. An experiment shows truth. Y'all, even even as a teacher, I toyed with this, with an exam, right? And instead of counting stuff off and putting big, big red X's on things, I started. I, I changed the color, I used green, and I put check marks on everything that was right instead of a red, uh, red X on everything that was wrong. Do you know what all of my students still focused on? The things that didn't have the check marks on them. Because that's what an exam does. It shows failure. A biblical test isn't designed to show you where you failed. A biblical test is designed to show you the truth. It's more like an experiment. And what truth is a biblical test trying to reveal? Well, this is the big picture of Revelation where it comes into play. Because Revelation is all about Jesus. And a biblical test is designed to show you the source of your trust. And if Revelation is all about Jesus so that we can trust him fully, a biblical test is designed to show us where our trust resides. And here's what this means it means that God will willingly and purposefully allow suffering in your life, not for our failure, not for our pain, but He will allow it into our life so that we can see the truth of where our trust resides. You trust in a full bank account or a pretty fat 401k? God doesn't mind moving economies to show you where your trust needs to be. He will send big bills your way so that you can see he is the provider, not your bank account. To him, here's what's crazy about God's economy. To God, prison, slander, accusation, tribulation, and even poverty are things that that they're experiments that he will use to expose to you the truth of your trust. Now, is this the reason suffering exists? I don't know, but I do know it is a benefit of suffering, is that we get to see where our our trust lies. You see, suffering allows us to trust Jesus more. Suffering allows us to trust Jesus more. Now, maybe this describes your wall. Maybe you have been suffering, and your suffering looks different than it did in Smyrna. I don't recall anybody getting released from jail this morning because of their faith in Jesus. Now, you might have been released from jail for something else, but it wasn't that, right? And so our suffering for our faith looks different than it does, but it still feels very real and still feels like suffering. Right? Maybe your family doesn't fully understand your faith in Jesus, and there's suffering connected to that. Maybe your coworkers or the company you work for, they don't understand why you make some of the choices you do. That you choose integrity instead of promotion at all cost, And that feels like suffering because the promotion always goes to someone else. Maybe the friends that you have, it feels like suffering because because they want gossip and slander to be what the core of, of your relationship is, but instead you exercise grace. They want power, but you show mercy, and there's suffering connected to that. You see, all of these may have suffering of some kind, or maybe your suffering is completely different. Maybe God has you in a kind of experiment, a kind of test, to show you where you can trust Him more, and maybe it's financial, Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's the lack of a relationship. No matter what your suffering is, all of us can still be hitting these, these walls in our faith. And those walls, Jesus is ready to break through, and he's ready to break through them today. I think it's important that we name those walls so that you can own it. And last week we did this, and it went over fairly well, so we'll try it again. Right where I ask you a question and then I tell you what the response is and then I tell you what the name of the wall here is, and it could be the wall that you're suffering from, the wall that you're bumping bumping up against. I believe it's important for you to own it and to know what it is so that Jesus can break through that wall for you. And so last week I asked you a question and you gave a response. So church, if you are suffering today, Right? If you are in the midst of suffering and you feel your faith is draining out and dwindling down instead of being renewed, if you find yourself being tested, if you find yourself in an experiment to see where your trust resides, if this describes you, then here's what I say. I say, church, do you know what wall you keep hitting? And then you say this. You say, Fred, what's my wall? So let's do it. Fred, I mean, no, that's my, That's your line. <laughs> I say, church, do you know what wall you keep hitting? Y'all are so good. All right, here it is. Your wall, if your faith is dropping as the pressures of life increase, if your faith is draining out as everything else around you is amping up, if you feel like you are in an exam and all you see is failure, instead of an experiment to expose the truth of where your trust resides, then you, my friend, might be up against this wall, and it is the wall of discouragement. That is what you're bumping up against, is simple discouragement. You, my friend, need someone to tell you to finish the game. You need someone to tell you that when you feel like giving up, When you feel like breaking down, you are actually right at the wall of breakthrough. And Jesus is there to break through it for you. As a matter of fact, let me let Jesus tell you to finish the game. Look at the rest of verse 10. Because Jesus says, be faithful unto death. Be faithful, finish the game, unto death. Because what comes after death? Life. Jesus already told us. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, this crown of life is what was given to those who competed and who won the competition. Much like in the Olympics, we get the gold, silver, and bronze. That's what the crown of life was. As a matter of fact, in the book of James, James 1.12, he says the same thing. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And here's what's great about this crown of life. Here's what's great about victory, and victory is on the other side of suffering. This victory doesn't go to one person. That's the problem with, with the Olympic Games, and you know every illustration breaks down at some point. And, and, and that's the problem here. When you think of the Olympic Games, you think of one person getting the gold medal. Well, here's the deal. Jesus is saying If you finish the game, if you let Jesus break through this wall of discouragement, there is victory for you. And so it doesn't go to one person, it goes to any person. Any person, as you remain faithful, that crown goes to you. Any discouraged person who finishes the game gets this crown of life. And so what I want to do is give us a moment to experience victory on the other side of suffering. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to have us do a time of response where we're going to bow our heads and we're going to close our eyes. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to start with your, your hands on your knees, palms down. And I'm going to go through some descriptions of, of, of certain people who hit this, this wall of discouragement and need someone to, to tell them you can trust Jesus And he is breaking through this wall, and you can finish the game. And if what I'm describing describes you, here's what I want you to do. Um, I want you to take those hands that are palms down and put them palms up. And I want you to receive from the Lord that he is going to break through for you. I want you to turn your palms up because you can trust him with this. Whatever this wall is that you keep hitting, you can trust him. And I want you to receive that breakthrough today. And so let's bow our heads, I'll pray, and then I'll I'll, I'll just start reading through some scenarios. And if it describes you, it's palms up and receive. Jesus, we start off this time needing you. And we desperately need you. Because I know in my heart I hit this wall of discouragement usually around Monday at 2. And God, you have always been faithful to break through that wall for me. And I know there are people here that are experiencing their Monday at 2 right now. And you can break through for them. And they can trust you as their faithful, present God who is in control. And they can place more trust in you right now than they had when they came into this place. And so to the mom who barely made it here today. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, you know that you're slowly wasting away and you are discouraged. You can trust Jesus. He is breaking through for you. You are a better mom than you give yourself credit for. You're a better mom than you know. You can finish the game. To the dad who doesn't know how to father, who doesn't know what to do. It's easy to give up on your responsibilities at home because they feel like too much. It's easy to give yourself to work because there it's controllable and there you are a success. You can trust Jesus. He needs you in your home. He can and will show you what to do. Jesus is breaking through for you. You can finish the game. To the single, you are alone, and you often feel the sting of loneliness. It's easy to find comfort in in ways that causes you regret. You can trust Jesus fully, because you can be full in your singleness. You are whole with Jesus. You are complete with Jesus. Jesus is breaking through for you. You can finish the game. To the husband who feels out of sync with your wife, this is discouraging. It's easy to give in to the temptation of pornography, masturbation, even an affair. And these are imitations of the real love that God has for you, found in the wife that he gave you. Jesus is breaking through for you. You can trust him. You can finish the game. To the wife who feels unloved, undervalued, maybe even ugly in your marriage, you are discouraged and and, and some of you deeply discouraged. It's easy to find affirmation outside your marriage. Jesus wants you to look to him for your affirmation. Sweet friend, you are who you are because of whose you are. You belong to Jesus. He sees you, he loves you, he calls you beautiful. He is breaking through for you. You can finish the game. To the teenager here in the room, you have so many walls that you hit every day. They take the form of your parents, your friends, your own mistakes and failures. You are not a mistake or a failure. You are loved, seen, and known by the Most High God. He knows everything about you. And listen, he really likes you. You bring a smile to his face. You are discouraged by so much. You can trust Jesus. He is breaking through for you, and you too can finish the game. To the person new in your faith, you may not have experienced a wall in your faith yet. You will. Remember, Jesus is for you. He will break through for you, and you too can finish the game. To the person who doesn't have a faith in Jesus, he loves you and is breaking through for you. Trust him today and see what truth he has. To those whose wall isn't discouragement, you can trust Jesus. He is breaking through your wall. And you too can finish the game. In Christ's name, amen. Y'all, look at where this ends in verse 11. In verse 11, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is a picture of heaven and final judgment. And you see, there is life and eternity, and there we will not face judgment in heaven The hurt that we experience here will not be there. The suffering we experience here will not be there. This is the place where suffering doesn't exist. And y'all, Jesus gives us a taste of that today. Jesus said that we can have life and have it abundantly today. We can get a taste of eternity today. And so church, let's finish the game. Let's show our enemy that discouragement won't distract us. We will follow Jesus, and we will trust him, and we will finish the game. Deal? Let's pray. Jesus, you are worthy of our trust. And so, Father, we give that trust to you. And we ask you to break down the walls which we keep bumping into and show us how powerful you are and how merciful you are and how loving and good and kind and you are, Father, that, that you will discipline us out of love. Father, I pray that that happens. I pray that we repent and change what we need to change. And we leave here today with more trust in you. In Christ's name, we